Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, lucky number, episode 13. Rob here. Find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. You can give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify now. We'd really appreciate it. This is the third of the four parts of our Evil Dead mega series. We're keeping it rolling along here with 1992's Army of Darkness. And on this episode, we have Jeff Johnson from Suns and Shadows cast uh, here to talk about Army of Darkness. And if you know anything about Jeff and his co-hosts, Kevin Will over there at Suns and Shadows cast, they really love genre stuff. They really love this franchise. They did their, they started their new podcast, Suns and Shadows cast with an analysis of Ash versus Evil Dead. So you know that they're all about this franchise. They even did an Evil Dead themed giveaway, which spoiler alert, I ended up winning. So if you want to see my unboxing of the Evil Dead prize pack that I won from Suns and Shadows cast, go over to the Crooked Table YouTube channel and check that out. But that's not what we're here for. That's that's after the fact. You're already on this episode, so we're continuing this rolling along. We're going to talk 1992's Army of Darkness. But first, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation with Jeff Johnson on Army of Darkness. You know, your shoelace is untied. He's a 20th century guy. For that arrogance, I shall see you dead. Trapped. In the Middle Ages. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. This is my boomstick. Now, let's talk about how I get back home. Foretold by a mystical book. Within its pages are passages that can send you back to your time. Forewarned by a wise man. You must recite the words. Klaatu, Berata, Nictu. I got it, I got it. Fulfilled by a wise guy. Klaatu, Berata, Nictu. When thou misspoke the words, the army of the dead awoke. <coughs> now, he's got a date. Give me some sugar, baby. With the army of darkness. You found me beautiful once. Honey, you got real ugly. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're continuing our stroll through the woods, through the Evil Dead franchise, and we've arrived to the third and and final Bruce Campbell-led entry, Army of Darkness from 1992, directed by Sam Raimi. And joining me in this conversation is Jeff Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be on here to talk some Bruce Campbell and Evil Dead. Yeah, definitely. Was was Dark City the last time we talked? I feel like it might have been. As far as like the 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 forum, the podcast forum, yeah, I think yeah. we talked like on the side here and there. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was a fun one. Great movie. People should check that out if they haven't seen it. So 
tell people who didn't hear that episode on, on the other show, tell them your story, who you are, what you have going on, and, and, and then we'll jump into the Evil Dead franchise. Yeah, my name is Jeff Johnson, of course. I do a little sci-fi TV review, do some memes, do a little little things here and there. It's a fun thing for me. So that's what I also fill my time out. Have, have you covered, have you gotten into the, the ash of it all at any point? I am going to be reviewing the TV show for my Sons and Shadows page. So I will be doing that coming up here shortly. Obviously, the original Evil Dead is, is a big seminal cult movie. Right. What was your introduction to the franchise? Did you see these in release order or are you like one of many of us who... I feel like a lot of people started with this one and then oh, eventually yeah. trickled backwards and like, oh, wow, this is the third one because it's not even in the title that it's a, a sequel right. per se. No, yeah. Like I started with this one in high school. It was actually probably the first R-rated movie I snuck into when it came out <laughs> just to date myself a little bit. But I snuck in. I had a blast. I'm like, and then I heard from like my friends who were more into like movies at that time because I had like other interests like video games and school and all the, all the fun stuff that comes with high school. But I heard that there was other movies. So I eventually got to track them down from the VHS store rentals at the time. And some were showing on like cable TV late at night. So I eventually got around to seeing part two next and part one dead last. I actually watched them in reverse order. And then once I got to college, I actually watched them straight through because that was actually part of like my uh, film class that I was taking. Nice. Yeah, I feel like that's very common that that people are stumble yeah. across this one and then you know backtrack because this was the most mainstream. This was like a, a big universal movie, eleven million dollar budget, which was the most expensive by far. I mean, the other ones are like three seventy five k, and then I think like three and a half million or something like that for the yeah, for the previous. Like yeah, yeah. So this is clearly like the mainstream version, which is so strange to call this movie mainstream because it's the goofiest of the three. Yeah, right. Would you would you agree it's also the most accessible of the three for this like in at the same time? I actually would. You don't have to see the other two to pick up like what the deal is. He got sent back in time. He's been in, been arrested so to speak in the 1300s and hey there's these evil things going on here. And you you just go along with the ride. You just buckle up you're like hey this is okay. This is funny. This is different. And it just picks up from there. And the more you go along for the ride, the more you're like, this is pretty fun. And then you want to learn more about it. You end up finding about the other ones. So this one definitely is the most accessible of the entire franchise, in my opinion. Yeah. I think you also have, ironically, this is the, I would say by far the least violent of the three as well. Like, oh yeah. Today, this would be a PG-13, I feel like. Uh, oh, I completely agree. They <laughs> so like, like the fact that this was your your first R-rated movie. Were you satisfied with that, or were you like, ah, there's no mm. nudity in this. There's barely any blood. Like, what is going on? Well, to my credit, it was only my first R-rated movie in the theater I saw. Right, I right, had right, seen right. Plenty of R-rated movies. Otherwise, thank you to right, my of course my wonderful father who would always let me rent horror movies. And Phantasm Two was actually my first introduction to horror. So. Nice, nice. Now, uh, you were mentioning the party caster. I was on the Demolition Man one for with you guys. That movie I saw in theaters at age 10 with my father and grandfather. So no, oh, I I was I'm I'm totally with you. 90s R-rated movies were were a staple of my of my childhood. 
There's just so, a charm to them. You just can't deny it. You watch them back now. It's like, this is like comfort food for a lot yeah. of people, especially like us. Yeah, exactly. I did a, an episode on my other show, the sister show to Franchise Detours called, now called Close Watch, formerly Crooked Table Podcast. And yeah. we did a, I did a conversation there on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is oh. 2005, but feels like it could have come out in like 1994. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It has that buddy cop vibe to it because it's just not something they make very much. I would almost say that about these movies too. These are, have that genre blend, that offbeat and that's that that offbeat sensibility and that boldness to start your trilogy as a, a I guess, straight up horror movie. It can't <laughs> yeah. be now, but do, do you agree that, that, that it was intended to be a, a direct horror movie, not necessarily with the comedic aspects at that point? Well, when I, when I go back and I watch like the, the first one, it definitely feels like there's something beneath the surface trying to bubble up for them. Right. But it's more the second one that brings like, as I like to call it, it brings the pain. It brings the, the meat and the guts. It brings such a zest and an energy level of, my God, I'm laughing. And I'm like amazed by the insanity on screen. And I just can't stop watching yeah, it's the only, it's one of the only trilogies, one like you mentioned, that every every installment feels connected, but also standalone. I think one of the only ones that I can think of is like, is the, uh, is Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi trilogy, where oh, yeah. you can watch Desperado. Like I saw Desperado a lot, again, speaking of R-rated 90s movies, yeah. uh, as a kid. And then years later, I was like, oh, there was this first one. This is a sequel to this like small independent movie in the way that Evil Dead 2 was, where it's a sequel, a remake, you know, and then the third one takes it to a, in a completely different direction. But Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I actually saw both of those before I ever saw El Mariachi, which yeah. is now sitting on my shelf. It's like insanely classic to me. But Yeah, for sure. For sure. But this and this franchise also completely shifted its genre from horror oh, yeah. to, I, I talked about it on the Evil Dead 2 episode, the perfect blend of horror and comedy, like you were saying, to this is basically this is basically no horror in it like this is just there's deadites there but it's set dressing for slapstick and like a three stooges routine and like all this other stuff which i love (laughs) right but it feels completely alien in a way to where the roots of this franchise are and yet still feels like it's of a piece i think because do you think that's because there was that middle step in 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 the second one where it's just like all right we're gonna take this in a completely other direction, slide the scale over so that we can do pretty much whatever the hell we want. Yeah, I do think there's something to that. And boy, did this this one go on the, the goofy scale by comparison, like even rewatching them now, it's like, wow, there's like a night and day difference between the second and the third one, which I don't know if we're going to talk about ending of the second one super quick, but yep. the way that ends, they're all hailing him at the very end. And this one picks up and it's completely glossed over like that never happened. He just ended up back in 1300 and and here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it lightly retcons the previous one, but then evil did too lightly retcons the first one where it was me and my girlfriend. There totally wasn't three other people here with us. And uh, (laughs) where you get to this one and it's been, 
I think they shot the first Evil Dead in like 1979 and it got mainstream released in 81. I think so. Yeah. In this movie, Bruce Campbell's like mid 30s and yet he has a chemistry textbook just hanging out in the back of his car. Like, is read. he still supposed to be a college student? Like, what is going on? You're in this weird, appropriately enough, given the time hopping of this of this film, you, you're like in a, just a vortex where there's a 35 year old man staring at us, but he's supposed to be 20. Like, it's it's funny. Oh, yeah. We've definitely seen stuff like that throughout cine- ages of cinema where things have to get slightly retconned to make things work and buy that this 32-year-old is actually a 17-year-old high school student who absolutely needs to win over the girl. And it's like, <laughs> oh, there's a certain creep factor there. and You just can't get away from that. But for something like this, it works because they're keeping the same actor along for the ride definitely others have been recast through the franchise but bruce has always been the the constant and he's he's basically the heart of this franchise going back to your other question super quick was the directors really wanted this one army of darkness to be the second movie but there was some script issues and dna deal de laurentis I'm sorry if I butcher his name, but he didn't really want to do that because he thought it might be too expensive. So that ultimately became this movie when he was finished shooting Darkman. And I'm talking Sam Raimi because it was part of his picture deal he had with Universal. Right, right. Darkman, that's another great, and speaking again, 90s action movie. Saw that so much oh, yeah. at way early of an age than I should have. Uh, uh, probably me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's That one's great too, people. I did an episode of that as well. Uh, that people can find uh, covering dark man but yeah it it is way more ambitious in that regard and and it does lightly retcon the character in a way him being 30 something now it's it's again you get that it's a symptom of the fact that these movies basically pick up immediately from where they leave off even though there's several like five to six years in between the production the release of each one And and if you want to just go in in continuity, Ash has been through a lot. Maybe he's aged <laughs> fast. <laughs> you can roll with it. Again, it's like it's when I did all the the Chucky movies for this podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like obviously with horror in general, fans are willing to just bend the like, to suspend their disbelief more than usual because of the nature of the genre. But it's always fun to be like, oh, but what are the rules of Chucky's voodoo like exactly? Because go. they change every movie. Similarly here, I think the the book, they the rules of the book keep uh, evolving with the, each installment. Here, I think it's officially, they land on Necronomicon. In previous yeah. movies, they just usually go with uh, Naturum Demonto or the Book of the Dead. Like they don't necessarily, I don't think, drop the word Necronomicon. And I feel like that one really sticks for, from this. We should talk about, you mentioned Bruce Campbell, and that's a good transition into this is by far the the most quotable of the oh, three God, of them, yeah. I think. And obviously the second one is his transition from a more more of an everyman into a cartoon action hero by the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Chainsaw hand and all. We get we get groovy and we get a couple other things in that movie, but here he's just He's he's like uh, he's like like it's like an action figure where every five minutes you you like pull a string on his back and he says another line that yeah. that has gone on to live in infamy. What what are your thoughts on on Ash's performance here and how he Bruce Campbell embraces just how over the top this character's become and and how he commits to that? Like because this is the movie I think in my mind that really canonizes like who who everyone thinks of when they think of Ash. They think of 
the like latter half of the second one and this, which is why when you go back to watch the first one and he's so he's so more, he's more blank as a character. He's not as, as, as goofy. He's not as, they're not really letting Campbell amp up that charisma. Right. Speak to his performance in this and how iconic it's become. Oh, his performance is basically off the charts. Like if you had followed him like at all, you knew what actor he was developing into at the time, but this was like the cherry on top. And I'm glad he never got like typecast in this kind of situation. He's gone in to do like loads of TV shows and movies, cameos and Spider-Man and whatnot. But this really encapsulates his comedic timing, his charisma, his charm, his presence. He just, if it wasn't for him, I don't think this movie would actually work very well. Um, he needs to be in this movie. Without him, it, something is completely missing, and it's it would be considered, I would call, tone deaf at that point. But his, his acting is excellent. He handles the one-liners right on point. He handles the dialogue well. He even handled all the action scenes. Like There's stories about Sam Raimi torturing him for 37 takes and knowing like the number system so he knows where to swing where the CGI was going to go. Like... You can't replicate stuff like that. And I think it paid off and Bruce nailed this one. Yeah, it's he because he has those movie star looks, Mm -hmm. but then has that ability to to lean into the slapstick and the humor and and making himself the butt of all the jokes. That's the other thing that I think works about this movie so well is he's obviously the fish out of water. The portal opened at the end of Evil Dead 2 and he found Mm -hmm. himself here being eventually the, the end of the second one gets there a little faster, but eventually hailed as the prophet, the hero that's supposed to come and save them and all that. But the, everyone else in the movie plays it straight. You know, that that's key. And Beth Davids as Sheila and, and everyone else, they, they play it like they're in a, 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 a <laughs> they're in a grounded, like medieval tale and they're facing this actual tangible threat. And then you have Ash come in and the and him and the Deadites feel it, it adds to the the element of contrast of the humor that he and the Deadites stick out so much in this movie because they feel literally they feel like they're from another movie. But I think it right. it highlights his performance even more so and gives him so much to play off of where in the beginning of this movie, when he's in the pit and you see the Deadite, it feels if you've seen the other films, which, as we said, a lot of people saw this first and then worked their way backwards. If you've seen those movies in order and then you get here, it feels jarring in a way to have a Deadite in this environment. Ash, modern, very modern sensibility of Ash and Deadites in this world. It feels like it shouldn't work. Right. And so when it does, it makes it that much more satisfying, I think, for the viewer. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with that assessment. Like, it's a trip. I mean, you can't go wrong, but you thought they might go wrong with this one. But man, it all pays off and it all came together very nicely. It's just missing the more horror-centered aspects of the franchise. And that's like the one big glaring omission is like, this isn't, this is not the last two. It's a little on the lighter side. Absolutely. Do you do you think that's something that Sam Raimi chose or do you think that was the studio imposing on him? Hey, keep this. You have some blood here and there, but try and keep this as, as clean as possible, given the, given the context of the franchise. 
Well, I think it might have been a little more on the, the universal side. Mm-hmm. Um, listening to your previous episode, Chucky 2, with uh, Kevin Smith, do check that out. That's a really fun episode. And you both had gotten into a little bit of universal wanting to keep the reins back a little bit on, on some things. I also do think there might have been some of that to Sam and just wanting to be more focused on the story because they finally got to do the script that they wanted. They just didn't get to have the ending that they wanted. Right. So do you do you prefer the original ending? So for people listening and who did ha- who haven't seen it, obviously this movie is famously ends with the hail to the king, baby, and he he ends up back at Esmart and he's a, a hero in the modern age, essentially. But the original ending, he was supposed to have to take too many drops of the potion, oversleep, and wake up in like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Do you did you do you prefer the original ending? And if so, why? Initially, I preferred it because I never knew that story for like the longest time that there's like another ending until like DVDs were coming out and we were getting like different deleted scenes and director's cuts and things like that. And then that came out from Anchor Bay, which is my collection here somewhere. And I got to see like the director's cut. So there's a little few snippets here and there, but the ending was like, hey, wait a minute, what? Like, I don't remember like any of this. And I didn't even know that there was like a different ending. So I could probably, you could flip a coin for me most of the time, but I will always lean towards the director's cut ending where he woke mm-hmm. up in the future and everything was a complete disaster. And he's like, no, <laughs> I, think I slept too long. Yeah. I slept too long. I think is the line. Yep. I slept too long. And going back to the S smart ending, the, there is a charm to that. So it's not like it's a bad ending. And even Bruce has pointed out, Hey, you can look at it as two different universes that Ash could still be existing in. One's in the future and one is in the present. And it goes to all the different sort of timeline jumping they've done through all the movies, all the different takes, the different directions. Like that could be considered a different universe. And that's something they do delve in into the TV show a little bit Mm. when they get there. But for the movies, like you, I don't know, I could flip them, but I generally prefer the director's cut. Yeah. It's so funny. That's funny that you brought up the the different universes because that was actually one of my notes was it is Ash's story a multiverse because you mentioned Spider-Man obviously this week, the Spider-Man No Way Home as of this recording this week that the trailer dropped and everybody's like, oh my God, they're bringing all the Spider-Man movies together. Yeah. Uh, it, these movies lightly retconning each other and then this film with the three different books and then like you said, the two different endings, it, it does feel like if they wanted to really go go ape shit on this and have multiple ashes interacting we already get that a little bit in this movie yeah they could totally do that they could they could totally pull that that trigger and have like yo the, the cabin is whatever it's a it's a prism and it breaks into different possibilities and so you have multiple ashes like i i like that theory and i think it works if you want to look at it as from the real life perspective of oh well they just had to like course correct slightly each movie that's why they don't fit exactly right. Or you can be like, no, no, I like the fan theory where these are all different ashes. That would explain why he's so different in the different three different movies to an extent. That would explain why why there's these inconsistencies throughout and things like that. Yeah, how do you, do you are you do you are you into that idea? Like, what do yeah. you what do you want to see from from that? Oh no, I'm I'm totally into that idea. It also helps you like not take the movie so seriously because the right they just. You can't do that with these movies. After the second one, it's like, 
if you're trying to really break these down and microanalyze everything, you're going to drive yourself crazy why things don't match up and there's consistency and continuity flaws. But if you just sit back and enjoy them and you go along for the ride, it, it really gives you some great ideas on the multiverse, the different ashes. It also gives you different ideas for like the different deadites through the ages, the the Condarian dagger that goes missing in the third one, but is in the second one. I mean, mm-hmm. that and that can show up just about anywhere as well. They can always go back to that if they wanted to. And the different Necronomicons. I, I love that scene, getting bit in the hand, getting sucked down the hole, and then finding the right one, and then having the wrong words. It's a very interesting way to loosely tie things together and be able to appreciate, hey, there's maybe more going on that they can always pull from if they're going to do another one. Yeah. Yeah. And this franchise, it seems like it's, I don't know if the 2013 one a hundred percent gels with any of the Ash stuff or the new one that's coming out next year, if that's going to tie into it, but it does seem like they're, they're letting the, the stories diverge and either coexist on parallel timelines or within themselves like it they're they're and in an age where everyone is like no this is a shared universe how does this connect to this in a way that's refreshing it's like just let the stories be you look at them how you want to look at them it's it's all good nobody cares and i and i like that element of it even though i selfishly i always want more ash we did get as you mentioned we did get three seasons of ash versus evil dead which I think this movie is the step toward step towards a, a focus within this franchise that isn't just the cabin. This is the first one to take us out. Like three out of these four movies are are five people or less in a cabin, essentially. Exactly. And this is the first one to be like, well, what if Deadites weren't weren't in the woods? What if they came into the middle of you know your 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 uh, Kmart equivalent, basically. Or or they made their way into Grand Rapids, Michigan and and invaded Ash's (laughs) trailer park or whatever. So I I like that they're trying to to dream a little bit bigger with what the possibilities of this world are and that that really starts here. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So I feel like we mentioned Ash vs. Evil Dead. We mentioned this movie is what officially adds S-Mart to the canon. <laughs> and which is why on the show, they they work at like, I actually, as of this recording, just started rewatching the show like last night. Because I've been obviously watching all these movies for this podcast. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get get my my Ash fix. I had to keep that oh, yeah. going. And so I think there they work at a store called Value Stop, which is clearly just supposed to be S-Mart. Does, do you think that, that the fact that they're not really supposed to, or at least initially they're not really referencing this movie, do you think that hurts that storyline in the show as, at all? Or do you think because it's so, they, they're, they're picking and choosing what elements they want to acknowledge or not, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's all just a, an open playground. That's an open playground. The, definitely with the show, they try to match in what they could legally it wasn't until the second season that they actually referenced like army of darkness events where he's he's talking about like oversleeping and he's like oh god that's happened before like not again like this, this cannot happen again <laughs> and so i love the the jab to army of darkness in that regard but like when they were doing the the first season it definitely felt like they were trying to pull the best aspects of the show and keep it as focused as possible to give people what they were looking for. And I do believe they delivered that. And I do feel like they captured the spirit of all the movies. So I do believe it, it's, it should be in consideration for anybody to like check it out for a Bruce fix or an evil dead fix. It's 
a bloody good time. And it, get, it restores the, the gore factor back to everything and the comedy. But uh, Army of Darkness, I think, is where it really opened up for a little more mainstream appeal to be pulled in. It's just a shame we never got an actual Evil Dead 4 or Army of Darkness Part 2, whatever it was going to be called. Yeah. Do we have any plot details on what that would have even been about? Because I, I that was something that was in the ether for a long time. And then once they did the remake or the reboot, whatever the hell that thing is, once they did that movie, it seemed like Ash, we had seen the last of Ash and then the show happened. So dude, was, was Raimi ever opened on like discussing what that would have, what that movie would have been? I'm, I don't know, to be honest with you, I'm not the most hardcore <laughs> fan where I know like all these little tidbits about potential, like, Oh, did he talk about the story here or there? But I do know that the idea was after the remake, they were going to do another sequel to that one. And then they were going to do an Army of Darkness Part 2. And then they were going to tie them all in into one big ultimate film and a seventh film. So there was supposed to be a couple more movies. And then they were all going to bring all the universes together in one big blowout of a seventh movie. One thing I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that Army of Darkness ended with the director's cut. They replicated that in the show. And there's a part of me that thinks if they had gotten a season four, we would have gotten what they were intending to do with the director's cut ending of the apocalypse with mm -hmm. robots and deadites and ash in the middle of all of that from another time zone. So I think there might've been something going in that direction that they got to tease us with at the end of the show. But unfortunately we never got there. So I can't really say for sure, but that's like fan theory, Jeff, right there for you. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I did remember that the series ends and a note sort of similar to the original ending of this. It's, so it's funny. It's like they ended up circling back around to post-apocalyptic Ash yeah. regardless. It just it took three seasons of a TV series to get there and 30, 30 years or whatever, 25 years or whatever it's been at that point. But yeah, no, I love that. I, I, one thing that I, I find really entertaining about the Ash character is that in all, well, in this one and certainly in, in the previous one, there seems to be kind of two Ashes. And I don't mean the bad Ash we get in this, obviously. <laughs> That's a totally different thing, which we'll get to in a second. But we get like badass hero Ash, where in this movie, he's like standing up and shooting the dead eye from behind, like without even looking and like, <sighs> while he's like oh, sighing, yeah. which is a great moment. And then we get Ash who's getting his ass beat by a bunch of tiny versions of himself. And it's like the, the running gag of these movies that, when other people are there, he seems a lot more competent than when he's yeah. by himself. That's when he's like full, full on buffoon. And I don't know if that's feeding the character's uh, delusions of grandeur that he has throughout this, this franchise or, or what that is. But I, I like some of my favorite sections of this film and the previous one are Ash by himself in the second one we get the cabin basically laughing at him and yeah. and him like mentally breaking him breaking down because of everything he's been through and then it culminates in his hand going bad and then in this film you, you get the whole thing with the little ashes that break out of him Gulliver's Travels style tying him down the, the whole battle with them and then the the uh, the shoulder eye that emerges as bad ash what are your your thoughts on the, that whole sequence in this the the wackiness of it but also like it, it, this film is a real showcase for practical effects too because 
it, you can see the seams. It's pretty obvious that some oh, of those yeah. little ashes are stand-ins or stunt doubles, or when he's running, that the half of the bad ash that's out of coming out of his body is is a, some prosthetic that's Sorry. just like a rubber head bouncing around. What what are your thoughts on that sequence and how it's it's? We were saying this is the lightest and goofiest of the of the uh, the three. That whole sequence going into the books, going into like the skeletons and like, arms coming out of the ground and like poking them in the eyes, like I said, Three Stooges style, but also like how how much fun Raimi has with the practical effects, because that's a real that's a real uh, attraction, I think, to to fans is is how he he leans into the the prosthetics, the stop motion. We get a whole Ray, Ray Harry house an army of skeleton armies in this uh, skeleton uh, soldiers in this. So speak to that, Vic. Yeah, the the eye thing, the first time I ever saw it, I actually remember this in the theater. I remember seeing a couple things of popcorn going flying in the air around me, and that startled me more than anything. I actually remember that. Some some people were just going bonkers, like, oh, my God, what the hell? And it's like, okay, so there's a, there are some little zingers here for, for like, a little bit of horror drops, but the... The special effects, like, I know you can see the seams. I know everything is superimposed. I watched the second one before I watched this one in prep for, for the show here. And it's it's part of the franchise. And yes, you can't take it out. Sure. But the, the, the practical effects are just amazing. They had the K&B boys on this. You got Nicotero who goes on to do The Walking Dead. You can easily see the talent there, like, at the beginning and just to talk about the multiple ashes just i love the gulliver's travel i love the harryhausen nods i i wouldn't change anything for the world with all of that i thought it was well done it fit narratively as far as the theme yes it was a bit goofy but were you having fun did you enjoy watching it if your answer is no then this is the wrong movie for you (laughs) Yeah, no, that's like I said, that that's just some of my favorite stuff in this movie is that him battling, battling bad ash. And then like, I think he pokes him. In, I think he pokes bad ash in the eyes and bad ash is like my eyes, my eyes. And you get that Bruce Campbell playing both roles against it. We get the another amazing line. Good, bad. I'm the I'm the guy with the gun, which is, yeah. I think, different. And there's a different version of that in the director's cut, I believe. And I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Oh, I should have written that down, but I did notice that too. I'm like, that's yeah. not quite right. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I think both work. I still like yeah. good, bad, I'm the one with the gun. Because the character, is he is an anti-hero at some points yes. too, because he's got that reluctant hero aspect to him where in this movie, he spends most of the movie being like, I don't care about you guys. I don't really want to be involved in your war. Just send me back. And then by the end, turns out to be the hero they were all hoping he would be, which is, is again, an arc that happens, kicks off Ash versus Evil Dead, where it starts off with them being like, Ash, we found you, the, the Deadites. And then by a couple, few episodes in, he's like, all right, I guess I'm doing this. I'm back on it. He gets his chainsaw hand and he gradually finds himself by the end of the series fighting to protect the world from apocalypses over and over again. So it's it's that's another thing I think that we love about Ash is that he's the he's not really an everyman at this point, but he's still an everyman put in extraordinary situations to some degree. And I think that's that's definitely part of what we love about him. Oh, I couldn't agree more with that. And that's that's his charm. And that's the whole charm of the franchise, in my opinion. 
Yeah, he he's also seems like I was mentioning his delusions of grandeur earlier. <laughs> Even Badash seems like he's on a power trip because oh, yeah. this guy's been dead for two seconds and he's leading the army. I'm like, why the hell is this guy in charge? Yeah, what did he do to become yeah. boss around here? And, and he's and he's got the girl already too. Like what? It, yes, good bad Sheila. That that was great too. But I don't know that that, that scene didn't really age all that well. Like forcing the kiss and like oh right. man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always something like that in these old movies. We've been speaking so much to the the tone of this film and how the genre kind of completely shifts. Yeah. Do you do you think that? fans who were on board from the beginning of this franchise do you what do you think their reaction would have been to this movie because i if if i was watching a horror franchise and it starts as a, a straight up horror movie and then blends some comedy into it okay and then gets to the third one and it's this like i could see people if this came out now there would be such like explosion of criticism on the internet where anytime you do anything different people are like that's not my star wars ghostbusters mm-hmm. insert franchise here i how what do you how would this have played now in the in watching this in order would people have lost their freaking minds at where this goes because it's it's you end up in a a uh, lord of the rings esque battle scenario with okay. ash and, and a bunch of stop motion skeletons it's like whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. where is going on where are we exactly and what how did we get here Raimi? Yeah, like, I don't know, I'll use another franchise entirely for this one, because it actually would mimic a little bit the Phantasm franchise. The the first one is like uh, an instant classic from the 70s. The second one is a straight up action horror with some comedy to it. And then the third one gets really goofy, but it does keep the horror, but something feels like it's off. But with the second one, they recast the lead character entirely. So you have a core group of fans who will look at the first one and be like, that's that's it for me. That's the best one. The second one, they screwed up. And the third one's even worse. And there might be some of that to some of the fandom for the Evil Dead franchise for these three. But I don't really see that if it was to come out like now, like you're asking. Yeah, there might be something to that now. But some of us from the older generation are a little more, I don't care if this gets me fired, but we're a little more forgiving for some things and not as forgiving on other things. Mm. But for something like this, I think us from the older generation would would be okay with this. But the younger generation might not have the patience for, well, is this going to pay off at some point? What's the deal? Why isn't this connecting to this? Mm. Why are we recasting that? So I think it's a product of its time that it came out during the right time it came out now there might be some really divisive fans and a lot of angry people maybe but i can't mm. really say for sure since it did come out back then yeah it, it reminds me and i've obviously just finished watching all the chucky movies for this podcast and mm. it's like that franchise started with straight horror more or less you had a yeah. killer doll who had i feel like that premise lends itself more to an evolution into comedy in a way but then you get to bride of chucky seed of chucky and that i think that was the stopping point for a lot of people they were like yeah no i can't this has gone down a road i can't travel so it, it's it, it's interesting to apply that logic to evil dead like would people that love this movie have loved it in context and I'm, i don't know i don't know the answer to that i think it's sure. beneficial that 
I think in a way it's a better way to watch this franchise to see this one first, like like we both did, and then work your way back. Because then it's like seeing a movie and then reading the book. You're not wait. They they took all this stuff out. You're you're discovering all these other elements that are added into the the you know the the picture of what you thought that franchise was. Now you're like, oh wow, all this violence and all this crazy shit happened before, right. and there's still the comedy that's that's in this one. I love it. Yeah. It's I think fills it out rather than limits it. If you look at it in that direction. Right. I, I, I agree. Totally. I, before we start winding down here, obviously I wanted to point out Ted Raimi is all over this thing. He pops up multiple times. He's one of probably one of my, my favorite parts of the second one as Henrietta as dead eyed Henrietta. So That's much great. fun in that film. We get like a, basically one shot or, or a couple shots of Bridget Fonda and as Linda, which is interesting right. to see her early in her career, but oh, is there any a button? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. 100%. Is is there anything in this movie that we haven't talked about before we started moving along that you wanted to make sure we brought up any favorite lines of dialogue or moments or, or connections to the previous or following films? The only thing that still has not been discussed is the Oldsmobile that has made an appearance in every single yes, variation of this franchise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's, like the it's as much, the it's as much, yeah, it's as much a, a piece of iconography of this franchise as the chainsaw, the book, the yeah. boomstick. Yeah. It's like one of five things that need to be in, in all of these movies, I think pretty much. Yeah. I think the running joke, I think this was in one of Bruce's autobiographies is he talked about the Oldsmobile and it's Sam Raimi's car. He's like, I think he might've lost his virginity in that thing. And so that's why it's in like every single movie he ever does. <laughs> so it's like a funny story whether it's true or not who knows but that's just the one thing i'm like that thing is in every single entry of evil dead and i think that's outstanding yeah no i love that it's it's a it's a little it's a little visual reference to be like hey even in, even if you're watching the remake we remember where we came from we're in charge we're guiding the ship there's still a method to this madness the oldsmobile's still here watching over all of us don't worry Exactly. So I, lo I love that part of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think this, the Evil Dead franchise contributes to cinema, the horror genre? What is the legacy of these, certainly the whole franchise, but I guess more specifically, these three movies that Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell put together and how they've, they've sparked this multimedia multimedia media phenomenon, video, TV show and video games and mm -hmm. comics and all that. What is the legacy of all of this? Oh, the legacy is Ash Williams is a hero <laughs> to a point um, or anti-hero, depending on your viewpoint. But like the franchise has definitely had an impact on on cinema. You can talk to any number of directors like Robert Rodriguez. You got Fidi Alvarez and you can go down the list. A lot of them saw this movie and it made them want to get into horror. So without this happening to begin with, a little Donkey film from Michigan in 79 and look what it's become. This is the definition of like a cult classic for a franchise. None of them have really made a ton of money, but they've given incredible memories to a lot of people, a lot of fans. There's a mark you cannot take off of the industry in any regard. The video games are fun. They're very hard. The comic books are fun. They get into Ash versus Freddy Krueger. The, the glove is in part two. It's also in the TV show. So 
there's so much you can get into and that was one thing with hopefully at one time they were talking Freddy versus Ash versus Jason Jason for like the second Freddy versus Jason movie. Unfortunately, that fell apart. So there was something to that. If you're talking like New Line is wanting to pull a character from some other little franchise, somebody up above was like, we got to have that in here. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, but... That's got to say something to the testament of Evil Dead and Army of Darkness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I don't know if it came up on one of these, uh, one episode of this mega series on Evil Dead or in the Chucky ones. Again, it's all blended together in my head uh, <laughs> to a certain degree. But he's also one of the, I think, I would say the only instance of a a horror hero that is as iconic as the as the villains. You always have you have Laurie Strode who's probably the closest. Right. And you have Nancy from Evil De- uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street and and certain characters like that. But you you put he's the representation of this franchise. It's Ash yeah. with the chainsaw hand. You put him up there and he gets added to the pantheon with Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers and Chucky and Pinhead and Leatherface and and Ghostface and Jigsaw or whatever. Like exactly. everyone they're all up there and Ash is the only hero of that group. And I think that that says a lot. That's Chucky and Tiffany are the only duo I would say that are, that are on that, on that level. And yeah, here, and here is Ash is like the only hero. Yeah. I, I love that aspect because like you have all these remarkable villains and you got the, like, like it just said, like the one hero amongst all these villains and there's so much love for that character, so much love for the franchise. It's no wonder they came back with the TV show and now Evil Dead Rise getting, I I don't know if it started production or if that's about to, but that's supposed to be happening soon. So it's a very exciting time to be an Evil Dead fan, even though you might've been disappointed by how some things happened with the TV show and it got canceled. Thank you, stars. Not thank you. But you know, that. You, you can't say enough about Ash and his presence, the look, just everything about him screams like, this shouldn't work, but it does. And that's the the beauty of this. Like, he, if you break this down as the archetype for a hero, what the hell are we promoting this guy for? He runs away half the time. He, <laughs> When he's on his own, he's goofball central. But when he's trying to command a presence and rile people up. It's like, dude shines. So there's something there. And I think that's absolutely incredible. And it's great to have a face for a franchise amongst a bunch of villains. Yeah. Now I, I, I have this, I have, I have an idea that I'd love to see and I don't think they'll ever do it, but I would love them to do an animated, if you have to, at this point, an animated movie doing the Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. Cause Robert Englund, Bruce Campbell, these guys are seemingly moved past these characters at this point. Bruce Campbell yeah. straight up said, I'm retired as Ash, but I'm, I bet if you pay him, he'll stand in a room and, and record dialogue for a couple of weeks or whatever. And we got Adam West and Burt Ward did the those two animated movies of Batman exactly. and Robin. And this is like 80 something year old, 90 year old Adam West at that point, something like that. Like you can totally get Robert Engel and Bruce Campbell in a booth and you have, you're not limited by budget because it's all, it's all animated. You can just like have fun with, let it be as big and as epic and as crazy as you want to be. Let it be bloody. Let it yeah. be R rated. Let it be for the fans. You, you put that on Kickstarter. It'll get funded tomorrow. 
Oh, um, <laughs> it even took that long. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. You get you. It's like, if you get those guys involved, it, people will, will make it happen. They will donate. They will put, throw their money at it. Like that, that gift from uh, Futurama where it's shut up and take my money. Oh yeah. It, that's it's totally right that. there with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I hoped at some point, something like that might happen. I think Bruce would be down for that. It's just maybe now as, as a, what is he in his sixties, I believe early sixties, maybe he's like, yeah, I don't really want to like run around and stuff anymore. I've right. done a lot of that with this character, but I, he seems devoted enough to this franchise and that character that he might do something like that. Yeah. He only said he was retiring from like on camera roles. Right. I think he finished uh, recording audio for the upcoming video game that they were making. Yeah. I don't know what the details around that are. And there goes my video game cred right there. I think he would totally be down for like what, what you're proposing. I love that idea. I'm surprised nobody's brought it up, but I think right. you could entice Robert and Bruce and be like, would you guys like to do this together? Like approach it as like, you two haven't really worked together on a whole lot. Now here's a chance we could maybe do something with you guys. I think they go for it just for the sheer chance to like, okay, I can be in a booth next to Kruger. Like, I think there's a mutual respect amongst a lot of the for sure the celebrities. Like, they all really care about each other. You could get like freaking Alice in here. You could get Lori. You could probably get Jamie Lee Curtis in on this. Well, maybe, maybe not. She's a little more picky about things these days. But yeah, you could get like anything. In, you could cast anybody as Jason. He doesn't talk. Same thing with Michael. Exactly. Myers. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Stop in the background, looking around, like, what the hell's going on here? As a cameo, and just leave like. Down this down roads in opposite directions, one towards Crystal Lake, the other one towards Haddonfield. Like, bye. We want nothing to do with this crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think as far as these those big horror icons we were talking about, two. There's like maybe two or three. There's very few that have played a role for decades, yeah. and they're essentially one of the only people. You had the the Elm Street remake that nobody really likes to talk about, okay. uh, but other than that, Robert Englund played that from '84 to 2003. And yep. then Ash played this from 1980. You know, Campbell played this from 1981 to what 2018 when the show yep. ended. And you have add Brad Dourif as Chucky in there, who's all done that since 1980. What is it, 88? Until now, the show's coming on on USA oh, and Sci-Fi. It's like, do you get those three guys? Give them a booth together. Like, let them Seriously. go for it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's right. Like magic is just waiting to happen for for it's like a recipe for disaster and success. I yes, absolutely. 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 Well, I think we, we've made it pretty clear that we both love this movie. Right. Uh, normally, this is the point where I ask, does this movie deliver on its predecessor? Is it a smooth ride or a wrong turn? But I know your answer to that because we, we both love this franchise. So I guess right. instead, I will transition to Jeff. What is your ranking of the four Evil Dead movies? Oh, the big one. Okay, I'm going to go Evil Dead 2 as my personal favorite, mm -hmm. followed by this one. This is where I might get a little, little flack. I actually do dig the remake, so I'd rank that number three. And I'd put the first one last. I know that that's freaking horrible, but when you look back, it's like two is like the perfect balance. Yes. I love all of these movies. Absolutely. Do not get me wrong. I rank them all. I, very highly amongst horror movies in general. So Evil Dead is a top-notch franchise. Just if you have, if I have to rank them, I'm going to go two, three, remake, and then the first one. Yeah, I, I think actually it seems like that 
Evil Dead, the the Evil Dead, the original, it is you're not the first person to put it to put it last. I think okay. actually, as of this, as as of right now, I, this is the last of the four shows I'm recording, and I'm I think that everybody put it as last. I feel like that oh, might really? be. Like, I have, I, I I, maybe I'm not. I'm, I'm one person. I'm not sure about of the episodes, and people will have heard that one by now, the Evil Dead Two episode. But yeah, it's that's tends to be the. the I, I yeah, I think it's it. It in the end again. That's not a knock to that movie because that's a great movie. It's just these ones are like slightly improving upon it. There, that film, the the original film was they were preceded by a short film within the woods. It was a proof of concept, and that first movie feels like a proof of concept for the second one. It's like exactly. like Raimi upping his game with each each film, or or at least challenging himself in different ways. And I agree with you. I think that that balance was perfectly struck. The second one is essentially one of the the one of the best horror comedies of all time and what what made this franchise endure i feel like a lot of that is is encapsulated in that second movie and in this one it goes a slightly different direction and still enjoyable but it it doesn't quite have the same edge as we've been saying but yes totally i'm right there with you yeah the only thing i'd say is i think the remake gets a lot of undue flack for people who wanted the comedy but i I don't know. I really appreciated that they tried to return it back to the roots and just go straight horror. And I don't know. It worked for me. And I thought that he did an amazing job and he's gone on to have a hell of a career. And I hope he would come back eventually, but (laughs) that may not happen. Yeah, maybe not. But yeah, I agree with you. I love, I love the remake. I think the remake is is so good and it's by far the scariest of this franchise too, because it's so intense it feels like it is what I think the first one maybe was if Raimi was was playing that straight, what the first one was trying to be. I feel like the remake lives up to that. The ultimate grueling, uh, experience in grueling terror moniker a lot stronger than the first movie does. But again, four really solid movies, really distinct movies. And uh, if people want to hear more of my thoughts on the remake. That'll be the next episode of Franchise Detours. But for now... Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show and, and talking about Army of Darkness. I know we were going back and forth for a while about getting you on to talk about something from Evil Dead. So I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me. I am at Suns and Shadows. It's just all spelled out. S-U-N-S-A-N-D-S-H-A-D-O-W-S. Uh, that is on Twitter. That is on Facebook. On Instagram, I'm just at Retribution Zero. I like to throw up little memes that I like to make from time to time on there and just random like DVD Blu-ray hauls, things like that. So reach out if you want to follow me and see what I'm doing. Hey, that's super cool. Thank you all for tuning in though. Yeah, that was this was a blast, Jeff. And we'll definitely get you back either on this show or yeah. or my other show, Close Watch with Robert Yannis Jr. Either way, this was fun and we'll, we'll definitely do it again soon. Big thanks to Jeff Johnson from Suns and Shadows cast for coming on to discuss 1992's Army of Darkness. It feels like for a lot of people, this was their entry point into the Evil Dead. Uh, what, what at this point was a trilogy. It's now worked beyond that, as we'll get to next episode. If you like this episode and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, really appreciate it. Get the word out about the show so we can keep talking about amazing franchises like this. But I want to know... Was Army of Darkness your entry point to the franchise? It feels like for a lot of us, 
that was when we first discovered this franchise and then we sort of worked our way back. And then, you know, the naming conventions that I have issues with ended up sort of making this a stealth threequel for a lot of people. So was that the case for you? Let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode with film critic Angie Aguayo for our discussion of 2013's Evil Dead. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Stay crooked, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>